This recording was brought to you by Media One Audio Visual. To learn more about us, visit us online at MediaOneAudio.com. Hi, everybody. My name is Jean Cook. I'm a musician, and I'm the director of programs for Future of Music Coalition, which is a national nonprofit based in Washington, D.C., that works on issues that impact the ability for artists to make a living and to reach audiences. Um, I'm also heading up a research project called uh, Artist Revenue Streams, which makes the pairing of this panel and uh, our work, it's particularly fortuitous. We've got a wonderful panel for you this afternoon. Uh, we're going to be taking a look at a number of different angles into understanding how artists are making a living uh, here in the U.S. and also in other countries. I thought maybe as we got started, if we could just get a sense of who's in the room. How many people in the room are musicians or composers? Okay. And how many of you uh, are affiliated with uh, record... Uh, how, no, sorry. How many people work for record labels? Label people? And how many of you are uh, music technology folks? Got startups? Whoa. All right. Any attorneys? Okay. Boo. Oh, stop, Rob. <laughs> Rob. Artist managers, publishers. Okay, who, am I, who, who are we missing? When, marketing, PR. Okay. So, what's that? Musician advocates. Thank you, Lissa. Okay. Um, so, we've got a great group for you today. I thought maybe before we let everybody introduce themselves, um, we would start by getting everybody kind of on the same page about what exactly we mean by artist revenue streams. Um, obviously, there's the traditional ways of making money for artists uh, that include recording and touring. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about <coughs> merchandising as well. Um, but recently, in a blog post that Future Music had put together, we had identified 29. Uh, and I thought that that could be a starting point for the conversation today where we just kind of review the different kinds of income streams that artists can have. Um, remembering, of course, that there are, for any particular recording, that a song might have two copyrights, one for the musical composition, which includes the notes and the lyrics, and second for the actual sound recording, which is the performance of the musical composition. So you've got the publishing, the composition side, and then you've got the sound recording copyright and the performer side. So given that, let's start with the musical composition, different kinds of income streams that you could have. You can have them uh, from retail sales, like mechanical royalties, uh, digital sales, uh, mechanical royalties from digital sales. So there's mechanical royalties from physical sales, digital sales, there's sheet music sales, and any of the folks on the panel, you, you should feel free to jump in too as I go down this list. Um, we've got PRO royalties, which is royalties for public performances of your work, um, which include airplay on radio, TVs, movies, jukeboxes, um, live performances, and for foreign royalties as well. There's advances from publishing companies during a publishing deal. There's payments from publishers uh, for litigation settlements. And there's commissions for work. So that's seven. Uh, income streams that we've identified just for some composition, uh, compositions. And then for sound recordings, we've got things like the digital performance royalties, which are royalties for digital performances of recordings that are distributed by sound exchange. Uh, we've got advances from record labels that are not just uh, reimbursements of recordings or touring, touring expenses. We've got label payments for tour support. Um, we've got payments from labels for litigation settlements. We've got things like AARC royalties, uh, which is collected for digital recording of your songs. 
foreign private copying levies and foreign record rental royalties in Japan. Apparently, they rent records, and that's a royalty that gets distributed um, through AARC. The AFM, which is the American Federation of Musicians, has payments uh, from the Film Musicians Secondary Markets Funds. There's something called the Sound Recording Special Payments Fund. Every time an artist appears on, say, a late-night television show like Conan or something like that, they automatically get payments from this fund as well, um, which is a retirement fund. It's actually pretty awesome. Um, the AFM and AFTRA have payments as well. Um, there's also revenue from licensing, uh, which you guys are probably, you, you probably hear most about revenue from licensing, like ringtone sales, sync licenses, which is synchronization royalties based on master rights, licensing your song to TVs, movies, videos, uh, video games and commercials. There's sampling licenses. And then there's touring. People who tour, uh, they get income from performing. Uh, they get income from uh, merchandise sales. Um, there's revenue from a performer's brand direct financial support from fans and patrons. Uh, there's ad revenue. There's acting in television, movies, and commercials. Um, there's product endorsements. Uh, and there's other licensing of uh, personas to video games, comic books, et cetera. And then finally, uh, the last seven that are on the list of the 29 potential <coughs> revenue streams that an artist can be making uh, include uh, a bucket that we call knowledge of craft. So this is like work for hire, uh, hired as a studio or a live musician or a composer, work as a music teacher, uh, session payments from AFM and AFTRA, being a producer, and then other ways that musicians' works can be funded, especially in the nonprofit kind of frame, uh, classical and jazz, uh, you can get things like government grants and nonprofit foundations uh, can also offer grants to you as well. So this is simply, um, it's a lot. Um, many of them you probably have never heard of before. Um, but they're all very relevant in terms of understanding what the picture of how an artist make a living uh, gets put together. Now we're going to go down the road. We're going to introduce ourselves. Um, each, folks, each of these folks is going to talk a little bit about who they are, um, where they work, what they do, but also talk about from their perspective what artist revenue streams um, you know, over the last 10 years, like what's, what have you seen really grow? of these streams, and what have you seen kind of shrink over the last 10 years, and what are you really excited about? So we'll start with Brian. Thanks. Uh, first, I want to say that I'm really happy to be here. Uh, my name is uh, Brian Calhoun. I work at a company called Sound Exchange. Uh, we are a performing rights organization uh, similar to ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC, but whereas they collect for writers and publishers, we collect for the performers and the owners of the sound recording copyrights, which are usually record labels. And we are uh, further limited to digital transmissions, specifically non-interactive digital transmissions, uh, meaning things that are radio-like so that the user doesn't have the ability to uh, press a button and say, I want to listen to this particular recording at that particular time. So it's, we collect for digital services like uh, satellite radio, so XM Sirius, uh, internet radio like uh, Slacker, Pandora, and the like, and uh, cable radio uh, like Dishnet and Music Choice, the high number of cable channels. Uh, you know, in terms of growth, <coughs> Sound Exchange has uh, grown really significantly. Uh, in 2005, we distributed $20 million, and then last year we distributed $250 million. So, in terms of growth, you know, it's it's really exciting to be a part of uh, the music industry that's growing at such a, a such a uh, rapid rate. And uh, in terms of individual payments. Uh, you know, you, we've seen the average artist payment grow from uh, just a few hundred dollars to uh, about three thousand uh, dollars annually. And we pay, you know, the biggest of the big artists, and we pay 
you know, small artists as long as they've accumulated $10 worth of royalties. So that's really uh, been uh, exciting. Uh, one of the biggest challenges that we face is, well, we, there's, there are a number of challenges. Uh, one of the biggest challenges that we face is to actually get people to collect their money. So if you are an artist or a label and your recordings are being played on these services, if you don't register with us, we can't pay you. Uh, Sound Exchange literally has tens of millions of dollars in the bank for tens of thousands of artists and labels. And I come out and speak and we do advertising and tons of stuff to try to get people to, uh, collect, their, to collect their money. So anyway, I'm very excited about, about that. And uh, I'm also, uh, I've had the opportunity to work with some pretty big artists and managers and seen some other interesting uh, um, areas of revenue grow like uh, artists doing deals with ad networks, uh, and generating revenue uh, from there, uh, VIP experiences, uh, and that type of thing. So I think we'll probably get into that a little bit later. What do you think has gone down? What have you seen trend? Um, definitely money from uh, advances uh, <laughs> and record <laughs> deals. Um, you know, it's I, I've definitely seen uh, artists have to take on much more of uh, a burden of handling their business in all aspects of their business. Uh, you know, some really well-known artists uh, that I work with don't have deals with major record labels anymore. And so they're having to go through uh, a learning process of how to put their record out. It's, it's actually been really interesting seeing uh, some artists who have normally just created a master and they turn it into the record label and then you know it magically kind of comes out. Well, now they've had to go through the process of learning how to do all of those things uh, on their own. So when do you deliver it to iTunes? How, much, how long is it gonna take for them to do it? What are the requirements to do that? And all those things for physical distribution and so forth. And you know, they just, th those big checks for, uh, for producer fees, for uh, uh, side artist fees and those kinds of things, they, they just aren't coming in the way they used to. My name is Dina LaPalt. I'm a transactional entertainment lawyer based in Los Angeles. My firm represents creators and talent, so music, film, book publishing, TV, um, all that stuff. If you're a creator, recording artist, songwriter, producer, we represent you. So that's what we do. We base our practice on that. Um, rule number one in Wall Street is don't invest in anything that eats. That's my entire business model. That's what my firm represents. So, you know, right there, that's where we're at. But anyway, what I do is I'm focused, the way it works in the music industry today is because everything that's kind of went downhill, you know, what I've done in my mind frame is I started creating, I look at my artist as a brand. So, building your artist business as a brand is a platform that I think we all have to be mindful of in order to keep the music industry going. And if we look at that way of like Artist Enterprises Inc. as the business, and then you have the manager who's the CEO, the business manager who's the CFO, the lawyer like me, general counsel, and the agents are, you know, can be equivalent to the VP of business development. And this is the way that we run our practice and we focus on trying to create ancillary income streams for all of our artists so they can continue to live and support themselves. I mean, it, you know, besides the recorded music industry that went downhill, Last year in America, the touring industry collapsed from all the consolidation, much like what happened in 1996 with the deregulation of radio that happened in the touring market in 2008. 
So we're in a really serious situation, the music business in general, and I think it takes a lot of us to work as a team to try and move it forward. The one thing that's clear is that you need music. People need music, you know, and how do we keep the music going, get everybody paid and move this forward? You know, also in America, you know, we have this antiquated copyright act that needs serious revision. You know, it, it was written for a product-based business, and you know, we're a service-based business now. So there's a lot of legislation that needs to be done. We all have to work together to kind of create, uh, you know, the future of where we're going so we can sustain this healthy marketplace that's currently unhealthy. you've talked about in terms of things that, that over the last 10 years that have gone down, the touring industry yes. has imploded. <laughs> and, then, and then in terms of things that have been going up, the ancillary stuff from uh, the brand of yeah, the Yeah, branding. You're, we're finding that in, in our practice, you know, the branding is what really is sustaining our artists, whether we put our artists on TV, such as Steven Tyler being a judge of American Idol. You know, Kat Von D has her tattoo shop and apparel line. We did a thing for her for, with Sephora where we have the Kat Von D Saints and Sinners line that's very successful. You know, I mean, I have a band called Black Veil Brides, and we were selling 2,000 T-shirts a week at a hot topic before we even considered a record deal. Um, you know, these are the things that, you know, we're thinking about doing, and as long as the artist maintains their integrity, you know, that's the key, because back in the day, branding was such a bad word, and today it's really not a bad word. You know, when you look at an artist that's 65 years old, you really want to limp around the globe like Seabiscuit performing, you know what I mean? I mean, at some point... At some point, we as fiduciaries have a responsibility to help our artists develop ancillary income streams. And if we're not thinking out of the box, frankly, I feel like we're not doing our job. You know, and for me, when I'm looking at one of my artists and, and the only thing I have to say is, well, let me negotiate your record deal, I'm essentially talking out my ass. I mean, I really need to say to them, you know, what is it you want to do? What is your passions? What are your likes? I mean, for me, I have very close and personal relationships with my clients and I want to find out from them what they like. And when working with Kat Von D, I mean, she's got such a, the way she does her makeup and her tattooing, I mean, she's got this entire passion for you know, the way, you know, she looks and, and the people in her shop look. And it was very natural to, you know, for her to develop a makeup line or something like that. And it's not something that she would be considered selling herself out. It's her fans were so grateful that you can go buy the eyeliner that she wears, you know, that has her branding on it. And, you know, she'll have an apparel line that's being debuted this summer. It's called Kat Von D Los Angeles. And it's her font, the way she writes her name and signs her name. And, you know, and when we think about things like this and we get to know what our artists want, then it's up to us, the, the team of advisors, well, whether it's the manager, CEO, the business manager, CFO, the agent, business development guy, you know, we all work together to bring these opportunities to the artists and continue to sustain their, their craft. Thanks. Rob? Hi, I'm Rob, a.k.a. Seabiscuit, and uh, <laughs> I work with the wonderful people at Ingrooves. Uh, we provide enterprise software services for large content owners like uh, Universal Music Group and Reverb Nation. Then we provide distribution and marketing services for independent labels, uh, including Fat Possum, uh, VP Music and ESL. Uh, in terms of revenue streams, obviously, it shouldn't surprise anybody that most digital streams are going up for us, and not much is going down. We're growing at about 80% year over year, and uh, 
So we're pretty optimistic about the future. Thanks. Marcus? Hi, I'm Marcus Whitney, a CTO and co-founder of a company called Moontoast. We're a social commerce platform. Uh, we are focused on maximizing the lifetime value that artists can extract from the social revolution that's happening online today. Uh, there's never been uh, you know, a platform where artists, brands can reach their fan base as easily and grow the top of their funnel uh, as much as they can today with uh, you know, Facebook, Twitter, and, and even uh, niche uh, affiliate social networks. And we really feel like that is an untapped uh, area that really needs to be exploited um, so that they don't have to just fight for a record deal, so that they can take those millions of fans that they're aggregating uh, online via some YouTube song that they put out uh, or a cover song that they did and turn that into a lifetime value customer that during the first phase of their career they can sell direct, you know, uh, CDs to or tickets to, but in the second phase of their career they can sell a autobiography to. Um, so, so really making sure that they're building that database and, and leveraging the new low-cost customer acquisition channel that's available. So what do you, sorry, I'm trying to see you. Hey, Marcus. Hey. Um, so from what you're seeing, it's in terms of um, what, what's potentially going up for artists is, um, is the fan relationship and kind of what you can draw out of the fan relationship. Yeah, yeah, so the advances are going down, but the access to your fans is going up, right? And um, <clears throat> the ability to control the, the merchandising packages, the ability to control the margins um, is, is all there in, in various different platforms. Um, you know, we, we see that it's not uncommon for um, established acts to, you know, see 1% of the traffic go to their website that goes to their social networking properties. Um, certainly engagement, if not traffic. Uh, and then with, with uh, you know, emerging artists, it can skew even more uh, towards the social environments. So, you know, a lot of people don't understand the, the rules and policies around what kind of data you can actually get to inside of those social environments. And really, the fastest path to turning that like or that follow into a real customer that you own and you own the data is to get them to become a customer in some way, shape, or form. Get a transaction to happen because that's outside of the bounds of what's happening um, within that social channel. Thanks. Dean? Hi, uh, I'm Dean Sudletik. I'm the president of uh, Emblem Music Group and also uh, senior vice president of a new entertainment technology company called Music Mastermind. Uh, I'll speak a little bit about Emblem first. Uh, Emblem is a music company that is kind of an umbrella parent company to a record label, publishing company, recording studio, and a management firm. Um, so we pretty much have our hands and uh, actions in every area when it comes to revenue streams within the music business. Uh, obviously, management clients who are aggressively looking to earn money through touring, you know, looking for record deals, uh, looking for opportunity to get their music out there. On the label side, um, you know, we have artists such as Matchbox 20, Rob Thomas, a uh, new country group uh, named Gloriana. Um, so we are dealing with established brands, um, you know, that have been out there for, you know, over 15 years to break through new artists. Um, there's a variety of changes we've seen uh, on both sides there. And then on the studio side, um, you know, it's a bit about trying to keep the lights on. Uh, my brother's a record producer and uh, Grammy-winning record producer, and one of the challenges for him is he still makes old-school records. He still puts a five-, six-person band on the floor and... 
uh, spends a lot of money making records, and it's a challenge, you know, as time goes on here, and the tools that we have to work with on a recording level, on a marketing level, you know, these are all challenges we fight for, um, and it's about protecting the creative process for us. So, you know, really with Emblem, my focus is on the business side. I, I look to identify talent, uh, grow that talent, and market that talent. And uh, for me, you know, there's been, as we look for revenue streams, a lot of the tool set that we used to work with 10, 15 years ago has changed a lot. Um, and I think we'll talk about that a bit today. And then Music Mastermind is a company that uh, I started with four others uh, about three and a half years ago. And basically the goal of this company is to provide an interactive experience for everyone in the music space and give everyone the ability to create music. Uh, it's a company that will be debuting our first product later this year. Um, but we're really excited about what we've created here. Um, and it's really an opportunity for people to create and share what they create and to get the joy of music experience regardless of their talent ability. So from your perspective, what have you been seeing going down over the last 10 years? What have you been seeing going up? I think uh, we see a lot going down. I mean, certainly, you know, people have mentioned advances in recording budgets. You know, I think in general, the money that's available for artists to develop their craft, to make music with, has been dramatically reduced, you know. Um, and even artists that, that frankly could spend the money, you know, some, someone like Matchbox 20 that has access to more capital, their desire to spend that money has been reduced because they know the returns uh, in today's business are a lot less. So I think everyone's trying to do more with less right now. Um, and really the challenge has become with a lot of our artists is that they're looking for to social media and kind of the do-it-yourself mentality to make up for the limited amount of marketing spin that is out there. You know, it used to be rolling into a record release, you know, the amount of marketing capital you would have to go spend and advertise your product was fairly substantial. Frankly, I don't see much of that capital around anymore, uh, regardless of rec which record label. And a lot of it comes down to what artists are going to create product that obviously connects with the fan base rather quickly, you know, in this noisy environment, and then also have the ability to connect directly with those fans and grow those one-on-one -on -one relationships. You know, I think what we instill in all the artists that we work with, and frankly, is a decision point for us, whether it's an artist we want involved in the Emblem music family, is whether they understand the importance of that one-on-one -on -one relationship with the fan base, and they understand the importance that it's ultimately up to them to connect their music with their fans, and they have to find a way to have a unique voice. And uh, there's a lot of ways through technology, a lot of outlets today, uh, that give artists the opportunity to do that in a way that obviously was not available. You know, when we started Matchbox 20, you know, they just focused on going out there and killing it every night, playing great shows, getting on radio interviews, being engaging, writing incredible music, and the rest kind of came. They got the opportunity once it grew. You know, today's marketplace is much different. You know, a young artist like Gloriana has to find a way to get to those fans because the world that Matchbox 20 grew, grew up in doesn't exist anymore. It's more about those direct connections. So uh, they have to work very differently. You know, someone like Gloriana, for instance, you know, they were the opening act for Taylor Swift on her Fearless tour. You know, most everyone probably thought they were, you know, having an easy day, maybe seeing a radio station or two before they got to that show that night. We had them in high schools every day before a Taylor Swift uh, concert, literally playing to lunchrooms. 
They'd come in. It was an opportunity to get in front of three to 4,000 students in a matter of an hour, hour and a half, and have a direct connection with them. Play you know, a couple songs, but more importantly, sit there and speak with the students, get to know them, have a chance to you know, trade information, obviously capture uh, email addresses, uh, find Twitter followers. And it was that communication back and forth with those fans that really paid off huge dividends uh, for that band down the road. And, Help them bring in a, a lot of fan-voted awards at the AMAs, at the ACMs. It was really about them going out and directly getting in front of those fans. Thanks. So what I'm hearing from uh, from each of our panelists is that uh, the touring market's going down, the advances are down, budgets for recording is down, uh, the amount of money that's available to invest in helping to develop people's crafts is down, um, and that labels in general aren't providing the support that they used to. On the upside, we're seeing that there are more opportunities um, with developing deeper relationships with fans. Artists are taking more control um, over these relationships and are able to find different ways of developing ancillary streams that they didn't have access to before. People are working on their brands um, and leveraging their brands to try and bring in new revenue that they haven't before. And obviously the digital stuff, all of that stuff is increasing over the last 10 years because it didn't exist uh, before that. Um, so to get, bring it back to one of the first things that Brian Calhoun said, you know, some of the artists that he's working with in this transition um, that have to navigate these new waters um, are having to learn a lot of things from the beginning. Um, Marcus was saying that you know, now you have complete control over every different way that you would, uh, that, that you would develop your relationship with your fans. And, and Dean is talking about how people are really having to become more business-minded and be very creative about how they make money. Be very creative how they make money. So the question that I have for, um, for you guys at this point is, so does that mean that the artists who are actually just good at writing songs and performing, are they just screwed? <laughs> they better find somebody that's good at everything to, to sing those songs for them. I mean, I, I think it is, it is a challenge in today's world to kind of be creative and solely be creative. I, I think there's very much a marketing aspect that goes along with it. The time for your art to develop and succeed, I think, has been shortened. Um, and you know, I, in today's world, one one of the other things we haven't mentioned with technology is that the ability to discover new artists has dramatically changed. You know, this business was built around bands, artists coming up and having years to hone their craft. You know, if someone develops a hit record in their basement, we find out about it right away. Um, and you know the trick there is that artists have to quickly grow into those shoes and be able to be ready for that exposure. Yeah, I would echo something that uh, Dina said. I thought this is, there was a really good analogy that she made about uh, putting your 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 team together. You know, having you know the CFO and the general manager and the general counsel. I think that's really important. Unfortunately, that until you get to the point where you have the ability to pay all those people, you do have to do those things on your own. Um, and I would also say that you know, I'm also seeing a transition. You know, you talk about all of these other things as ancillary income, they're starting to become primary sources of income. Uh, and, and you know, so it's, it's really important. All, all these things are, have become very important uh, pieces of the, uh, the revenue streams that the artist has. And, and I also say uh, that improving margins on those existing uh, you know, primary sources of revenue, so 
whether it's you know touring or record sales or, or whatever, has also become uh, really important. So doing more uh, analysis and being aggressive about making sure that you're maximizing your revenue on your merchandise, and you know, so that you're you know you're keeping your costs down and you're reducing your costs for delivery and, and and those types of things to improve your margins has become really really important. And you know, you know, in terms of touring, for instance, you know. We, we talk about uh, working on trying to uh, control, to at least a limited extent, the you know secondary ticketing and uh, VIP experiences, so that you have the ability to, you know, where an artist takes uh, a certain portion of the house uh, for, off off uh, and puts them on hold, so that they can sell them directly to the fans. And so you have a ticket that may sell for a hundred dollars. Well, they'll charge three hundred or four hundred or five hundred dollars or more sometimes, and provide significantly more value. So maybe it's an artist meet and greet and those kinds of things. And then for a tour that has 30, 40, 50 dates, you can end up adding hundreds of thousands of dollars of additional income uh, it, you know, at the end of the tour uh, just by doing those types of things. I agree with Brian. The, um, you know, the VIP fan meet and greet experience, the virtual ticket has become very important, especially because there are no guarantees in touring anymore the way it used to be, where you'd have a promoter that would guarantee you, you know, a certain amount of money, and then if you made over that money, you would get part of the door, but most important, if you made under that money, you would still get your guarantee. That very rarely happens anymore. So it's really difficult, and by selling these VIP fan packages really creates a lot of income. If you have a band that's playing sheds over the summer and you sell, you know, 100 packages or 200 packages at $350 a piece and you get certain benefits for that, the fan feels that they're getting a value and the artist is making the money, so it's a really good thing. And... The other thing I wanted to say is that it's not just about those traditional income streams. I mean, what you're talking about, the fan experience for VIP ticketing has been around for a long time in the United States, and the ticketing market in the United States has largely been corrupt and crooked. And now you have companies that are legitimized it, like Ticketmaster with StubHub and things like this. So they've become a form of legitimate corruption. But, um, <laughs> you know... But, you know, that's kind of where we're at with that. But, you know, thinking out of the box and creating different income streams, I mean, is a very important thing. And like I was telling the guys backstage, like even this mobile app that one of my clients developed, because he's very creative. Hold on, let me tell you. I know your password now. Yeah, so Rob's going to steal. So Steven Tyler's absolutely, and this is a celebrity-based personality app, okay? And what this app does, I mean... Every time he says something really funky on American Idol, we put it on this app the next day. J-Lo's got the street, and the dog's still in heat. You know? <laughs> and uh, we, did, we have this debuted on iTunes for $2.99. Come on, baby. And what he does... <laughs> And we have this video feed here that he does it himself because he's very creative and he puts up videos of himself all day long filming himself on his iPhone. So you can go on, you could see him at the movie premiere with Johnny Depp on Saturday. Here's him with Jay Leno the other day. I mean, he does all this stuff and he puts it up so it's like a video Twitter feed is what he does. And then we have photos that we license that we put up here, you know, either from American Idol or things that he did with the band, you know, things that we could license. We have 
trivia that we put up, but his Tylerisms have been very, 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 very popular. Like he says these funky things online on TV. D to the Z, And now our next version of this, because we've had such a calling for these Tylerisms, the next version of this, we're going to have them be master tone downloads for your phone. So that's what we're working on right now. But it's like these things, I didn't like pull this out of my butt and say, let's do a mobile app. I mean, he's a very creative guy. And the one thing I want to bring up here is the impeccability of the artist. The artist has to work as hard as me. Okay, so it's like if you're sleeping until 2 o'clock in the afternoon playing video games, that's not going to work. You know, the best clients at my firms are the ones that reset my priorities by 8 o'clock in the morning. I wake up with a, with a certain agenda that i got to go through my day, and it's always my most successful clients that don't turn off the noise that are redefining my priority list for the day. And these are the ones that, you know, with their creativity, you just have to run behind them, you know, because they have all these ideas. And, you know, when he, Stephen, had this idea for a mobile app, you know, the developers who are very close to him, close personal friends, they're the ones that develop the technology. Now, I got to tell you something, okay? I'm primarily an intellectual property lawyer for the creative side. So, you know, it's very difficult. I had to consult with a technology lawyer because to me it was like speaking Russian. So here I get this agreement from the developers and half of it I couldn't even understand. So one of the things, you know, Jeff Liebenson, who's in the, off, in the audience, raise your hand, Jeff. He is got this unique position where he speaks both languages. He's a, he's a tech lawyer and a music lawyer. So, you know, me as the general counsel of my artist business have to sometimes bring in different lawyers to consult with me on various aspects of the business. But are things like this, thinking out of the box, is the way that we help sustain our artist brand. I'll just, I'll just add quickly that um, I don't think we're all screwed. This is heavily artist and genre dependent. So uh, I speak with a lot of artists that are touring more now than they used to a few years ago because they're able to reach out to their fans in different market marketplaces and uh, know where they're going to sell well at different venues. And uh, they weren't able to do that about five years ago. So it, it really is, is dependent on the specific artists and what tools they're using to try to increase uh, these new revenue streams. Yeah, and, and Dina, to your point about uh, you know the creativity, I mean, it, some of it's just simple economics. That there is so much music out here right now. I mean that you you have to do something different. You know, I th MTV gave us the cue a long time ago that it wasn't just going to be you know endless music that was going to make all the money. It was it was brand building. Um, you know, it's been a long time they've been pairing brands with music, and that's really the combination where where the money is made. Um, and, and so you know, you look at groups that broke out in the last uh, you know year. Anything from Rebecca Black, which is you know kind of a, a, a hokey thing, right, to Odd Future, which I think people are are also wondering whether or not they're real or not. But they all did something you know that really stood out <clears throat> from from a from a creative perspective. And you know, like it or not, they now represent a brand that other brands want to be associated with, you know, and can identify demographic with. And um, you know, in the non-music side of things, you you've got. Celebutants that have managed to make their brand into multi-million dollar businesses like Kim Kardashian with Shoe Dazzle. I, I really think that the ability for an affinity-based brand, music being a huge one and responsible for you know at least one-fourth of all the major engagement on social networks right now, um, 
you, you have this opportunity to create huge, huge careers around your brand with your music being the thing that's driving your brand. But there's got to be creativity. There's got to be a business mind behind it. And until you can build your own team, you have to be that CEO, that CFO, et cetera. Just don't be like Kim Kardashian. <laughs> Rich? So we're, we're going to go to audience <laughs> questions in a minute. Rich. Um, Rather not be Kim. Right before we get to audience questions, though, I have one more question for the panel, which is, um, in your experiences, what are some of the really surprising sources of revenue that have come up over the last 10 years? Sound exchange. Yes. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah, we had no idea that that was going to happen a few years ago, and it's, it's been uh, uh, obviously increasing over the past few quarters, and it's an incredibly important revenue stream. Unfortunately... It's very difficult to predict and budget and forecast, um, but it's, it's increasingly important to that overall revenue pie for artists and labels. And let me add to this, you know, in America, we don't recognize the performance right for terrestrial radio for sound recordings. So for sound exchange, they collect money and they pay out money for master recordings that are played digitally, okay, through webcasting and some radio stations that have the brains enough to simulcast their, their show on the internet. They pay those monies, but we don't recognize the right for terrestrial radio in the United States. We're, out of, out of th we're one out of three countries in the world that doesn't recognize this right, right along with North Korea and some other crazy... Syria. Syria, China. right? And China. 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 Yeah. Horrible. So, you know, China, we don't even ship records there anymore since the past 10 years because of the piracy. So, you know, that's the issue. We got to get this performance right passed in the United States because it'll bring in $200 million more a year in the U.S. to artists and record companies. So we, as the United States, represent 33% of the global music market, and we treat our recording artists the worst. It's just terrible. So you guys think about that. Just to add to that, I mean, it's in addition to the money that you're talking about that's going to come in for artists, because they collect this right, uh, because they collect money for this right in other countries around the world, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars that's just on the table, that other countries are spending uh, they're, they're not giving it to American artists, and instead of doing that, because we don't reciprocate to them in France, they're using it to fund their arts education in schools. Right. I mean, they're taking money that should be going to American artists, and they're just using it for the things that they want to use them for in other countries. So this is not just money that's going to be coming to American artists from, uh, America, uh, from companies that, that work in America, but also um, the money that should be coming to us from other countries. So, questions. We'll start with... Run, Laura, run. <laughs> it's those shoes, girl. Prada, honey, you needed some sketchers. Uh, make sure you say your name and where you're from. My name is Todd Boston, and I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area. I live up in Marin County, actually. And I'm a musician, uh, composer, and producer. And uh, recently, I began a project. Uh, it was a high-budget project um, for an independent artist, around $50,000. And I... Um, in efforts to raise the money for the project, did a crowdfunding through Kickstarter and was able to successfully raise uh, $25,000 as of last week for the project. And my question to the panel is, how does this technology of crowdfunding um, benefit the future of independent artists? It's obvious I, for me, um, but is there any visions of how the crowdfunding plays out long term with the industry? 
Crowdfunding, I think, is is an amazing way for independent artists to raise money to pay for their 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 work. And you know, it's really unique because I think the more of an authentic relationship you have with your fan base, and the more your fans feel emotionally connected to what you're doing, you know, you'll always, always, always benefit. You know, your fans are someone who always want to see you healthy and eating right and sustaining yourself and. I just think it's an amazing opportunity. And, you know, just for the legal issues involved in that, I mean, you know, everybody that goes and, and they sign the agreement on Kickstarter or they donate $10 or $20 and they click agree and they donate their money, I mean, it basically says it's a work for hire that's owned by you, the artist um, who's creating the work. I just think it's an, a remarkable way to raise money by your fans. There's not a bigger advocate for you than your fans. So I love Kickstarter. You also mentioned Pledge Music is another one that's uh, really cool, too. Another question? Hi, my name is Matt Liebenson. I'm at Creative Commons. And I'm curious about uh, how, over time, as more focus goes on the branding and on what was typically conceived as, as the ancillary uh, sources of revenue, uh, to what degree we can expect that to change what sort of music we're confronted with when artists are going to be more successful if they have the whole package, if they have the whole brand. Um, might that, and for instance, looking at the MTV model, how over time uh, artists that can make great music videos have been more successful and we're more likely to see them, um, how that might change what sort of music we're confronted with on a regular basis and how that might affect quality, if anything. I, I mean, I, I think that's already happened. I, I think, you know, you break out bigger on YouTube than you do, you know, on Groove Shark or something like that, right? I mean, so ha having the visual aspect is definitely something that, um, that is going to make you more share worthy. And, and that's the way that you build uh, you know, a grassroots following uh, that, that you can actually turn into some money some, somehow. So I, I think that's already happened. Yeah, I, I just add too, in terms of the monetization of the videos, uh, you know, people should kind of manage their expectations in terms of what you're gonna be able to get from that. There was a really good article in Billboard, I think the week before last, where they were talking about the revenue from it. So I think on the high end, uh, content providers are looking at getting like a half a penny per play. So you got to get a lot of plays for that to add up to be something significant. You know, the other thing I wanted to say real quick is record companies no longer pay for the music videos. I mean, it's really dried up. So what we're doing now is we're doing product integration. So Jennifer Lopez's new video was all made with product integration. And of course, when it aired on Fox, they had to take some of the products out because there was a sponsorship protection with American Idol. But this is what we do. I mean, you know, you raise money through product, whether it's Ford or AT&T or Coca-Cola. And by, you know, again, you ha it all starts with a good artist, someone who has good music, good songs, who is very, very focused. So you get a good artist who can creatively integrate the products throughout the video without being tacky and generic doing it, you know, is key. Okay, got a question here. And then Laura, I saw that Tim has a question in the back too. Yes, hi, my name is Charles Che with Yummy Melon Software. I'm a friend of KUSF in Exile, a local college radio station whose broadcast license was actually sold at the start of this year in secret. I have a question uh, actually directed towards uh, Dina LaPolte and uh, Brian Calhoun. I'd like to know about terrestrial radio stations and the issues with performance licenses. Um, if they decide to start an internet play, are they still 
free from paying the performance license, or is that a gray area? Or no, I'd like they more wouldn't clarity. have to pay for the performance license, but it would be, be based upon your annual revenues. So, for instance, a nonprofit station, like one that you're speaking about, if your if your net income for the year was five hundred dollars after expenses, then that's what your performance license would be based on. But then again, if you're Alice or Kiss FM in LA, you know where your demographic is eighteen million people, you know, and your net revenues are ten million dollars, then your your reven your license would be based on that. But at the end of the day, um, the way it works in America is in 1996, when radio was deregulated, it really affected this country, okay? Because the FCC, they basically lifted the restrictions on ownership requirements. So then you had companies like Clear Channel that came in, CBS that brought 3,000 radio stations, 4,000 stations, whereas before 1996, you couldn't own more than 100 stations. So it really, really, really hurt. American radio and what happened is the artists suffered and the people in the audience that are promotion executives that work at radio stations like program directors they will tell you that their job has largely been very boring since radio was deregulated. The one thing in America that we always had that we don't have anymore is that every place you went whether it was New Orleans or Birmingham Alabama you always felt the local flair of the local radio station and there was something about it you know what I mean? I mean across the country across other nations, the one thing that we have in America is the African-American, okay? And that culture, that flair that we have with the music down south, we don't have anymore. So you're going to Birmingham, Alabama, and you're hearing Britney Spears, and this is the kind of stuff that happened, which really, really, really affected us. So did I answer your question? I think that it's, <laughs> I think that it's important to point out with respect to the performance right, that the way the legislation is being crafted is that I think that the, the creative community recognizes that local community radio stations and that NPR stations and non-commercial radio stations, community radio stations, are doing a real service to artists. And that there there is a tiered system. It's not like, and the people who are gonna be paying the most are gonna be people who can really afford it. And so when when you talk about, I mean, I understand like you're, you're talking about KUSF and, and if you if the performance right were to be enacted, um, how, how would you be impacted? And so I just wanted to make that clear so I'm also asking that in terms of like uh, terrestrial radio broadcast license aggregation, where, for example, you know, folks uh, like Clear Channel or perhaps uh, CPRN, uh, folks that are basically aggregating licenses to take advantage of this loophole, or is this something more perhaps uh, that the cameras could perhaps elaborate on it that uh, would provide insight for all of us out here? Well, really, no terrestrial broadcasters in the United States are required to pay the performers and the owners of the sound recording um, for, for the terrestrial uh, for the, uh, terrestrial distribution and performance. But to the extent that they are also broadcasting their signal online, then they are required. And whether you're Clear Channel or you're you know, a small uh, college station, you are required to pay. However, the rates are significantly different. There are a number of different types of deals that we have in place to make accommodations for different types of business models. Uh, there's a lot of information in providing a, a lot more detail about the types of deals that are available to you, and it's all on our website, which is soundexchange.com, so certainly check it out, and you could certainly contact someone in our office, but we also highly recommend that you speak with an attorney who specializes in this type of thing to make sure that when you opt in for this license uh, for your broadcast that you're making sure that you're opting in for the correct license. Tim? Hey, my name's Tim. I work at Google. Um, Gene, you started the panel off. You were listing, it sounded like way more than 29 revenue streams, actually. And as you were going down the list, I, 
I couldn't help but thinking about all the different middlemen that have sprung up to sort of help artists get the money from each revenue stream. Um, so I have sort of a two-part question for each panelist, um, and uh, who, or at least each panelist who's a middleman or a person. Um, and that is, one, how do you, you know, what's your advice to artists for figuring out what are actual helpful middlemen that are going to help you get more money than you would have otherwise versus people who are just, you know, taking money for not doing all that much? And the second part of that question is, how do you measure up to that standard? Let me just say one thing before everybody jump in. Shut up, Rob. All right, let me just say one thing. Tim, thank you for this question because I gotta tell you, here is the fundamental problem, okay? The tech people need to understand the music business. The music business need to understand the tech people. There's two different languages. It's gotten a lot better in the past five years. Okay, but what happened with the master ringtones is when this technology was developed and we were able to offer ringtones on a cell phone, because the music people had no clue how to deal with the tech people. We didn't speak that language, and the tech people were frankly very frightened by the music people. Lots of tattoos, eyeliner, foul language. It was not good. So what we did is we had these aggregators, these third-party aggregators like Moderati and Exinger that came in, and all they were is they were middlemen that just came in and said, I can bridge the gap. And we ended up giving 50% of our revenue share away to these aggregators. And what that did is I think it taught the music lesson, the music business a lesson and the technology companies a lesson is that when we have these middlemen, we end up giving away our revenue shares and it's really, really important to have conferences like this where we can blend the two worlds because together we can conquer the universe. That's, yeah. <laughs> That's all I'm gonna say. Amen. Just, just to defend uh, Moderati, um, they, it was actually the carriers that were taking 50% of the revenue stream, not Moderati. They typically would take between 5 and 10% of the retail okay. price. So, uh, and so anyway, but I, I don't want to um, defend them too viciously. Uh, no, it's a good point, Tim. Good question. In terms of uh, middlemen, I think the, the point to make is this is a large ecosystem that we operate in, and it requires... Uh, uh, a lot of partnership and, and vendors working together to solve these problems. So I think that those that don't add value are discovered pretty quickly. Right. And, uh, you know, for us, we've been around now nine years. So hopefully we're still adding value to this process. And uh, that's... Well, well, what advice, I mean, to get specific, like what advice would you give to an artist who is trying to figure out how to choose between all of the different middlemen that present themselves? There's a lot of information out there on, on you know, experience and what uh, services that people provide. So chat with other artists, see what's worked for them, uh, and you should be able to find the right partners that'll help you access these new revenue sources. And, and uh, you don't want to make a mistake in this marketplace. It's moving too fast. So you want to make sure that you are finding the right partners to work with and, and uh, go from there. Yeah, yeah I just I, say... I was going to say real quick is that you have options. Yeah. You know, there, yeah. there are a number of different options. Talk to all of them. Look at what the deal terms are. Look at what value it is that they're providing. And, and just like Rob said, you know, talk to other people who use those services and find out who's been successful with them. You know, I, I work with a company and use, use Rob to distribute their, uh, distribute their content digitally because that was the bet, that's the best partner for them. And the, to, yeah, I was just going to say, in the early days, there was a lot of misinformation out there in terms of uh, yeah, people said they did a lot of things that they didn't really do. Uh, you know, they yeah. said that they were a digital distributor, but they weren't actually right. distributing anything. Right. They were just handing it off to some other third party. Right. 
to do the, the uh, deliveries. So um, again, there's a lot of that information, misinformation has been flushed out of the marketplace. Uh, so, you know, again, the, the internet is the great equalizer of all information uh, and you have to be transparent and basically stand behind what you say you're gonna do. Otherwise you're gonna be discovered. Dean, did you have something to add? Well, I was just going to say, we had an experience uh, when we started Emblem. Uh, we'd come out of the major label system. We were at Virgin Records, and, you know, my brother and I starting restarting up our label, you know, found ourselves where we had to provide all these services on our own without a major distribution partner initially. We ended up doing a deal with Warner. But for us, it was really just about using our contacts, using networks, just like anything, you know, <laughs> trying to figure out what restaurant to eat at tonight. You're going to find people you trust in San Francisco to lead you that way. We had to do the same thing to figure out how to get our records up, get them available digitally. And we found it very easy to, to get recommendations and get feedback from people using these services. There's a lot of people in front of you that are using in-grooves, that are using other uh, options out there. Uh, find a way to get in touch with them and, and ask. Is anybody interested in taking on, Tim, uh, taking on Tim's challenge of defining what makes a useful middleman and how you how you personally uh, stand up to that. Uh, I've always, I've never thought of Ingrooves as a middleman. Um, I think of us as a service provider, much like uh, a lawyer provides certain legal services um, or an accountant provides accounting services. We provide digital logistics and supply chain services. And, you know, we don't just push paper or hand things from, from one person to another. And uh, it just, it takes working with us to understand what the difference is between middlemen. And, and InGrooves has relationships. I mean, that's the other thing is like you're, when you're going to InGrooves, it's like you're not getting some third party who's going to push it off to some, or someone who's going to push it off to a third party like Rob says. I mean, you're getting people that have worked in the music business for a very long time that come to the table with all those relationships. So we have time for one more question before we wrap up. Hi, my name is Wesley Frederick. I'm from San Francisco. I just wanted to hear a little bit more about the terrestrial radio performance option because it's my understanding that the uh, the copyright holders of the of that performance right, the record labels, actually waived it and uh, for uh, publicity and the whole payola, uh, all of that that happened. They'd just rather have it played on radio um, and get that to help That's sell records. That's the broadcasters, okay, the NAB, National Association of Broadcasters. That's their argument. Oh, well, we don't have to pay because we put you on the radio stations and you get all this publicity. But, you know, that's something that they made up themselves to make themselves feel better, okay? The bottom line is it's a, it's a right that is not recognized in the United States, and it's a shame. It's recognized in 80% around the world, right, Gene? 85%? 75 industrialized, all the, all the industrialized countries in the world. And, and how did that right not come to be recognized? The NAB has a lot of money. They're very powerful, and uh, they have incredible lobbyists. Yeah, and, and I also say that this is not something that uh, we've been fighting for recently. This is right. something that we've been fighting for Since for decades, you know, yeah. and, uh, you know, you could... You know, uh, one of probably the most well-known um, spokespersons for this was Frank Sinatra. You know, he he was really trying to get this passed. He said, "Look, you, you know, radio stations, you're not playing my songs because of who wrote it. You're playing it because I sang it." But because they didn't have they didn't have to pay him, they chose not to. You know, and it's it's a really unfortunate incident where you have uh, 
a group or, or a business enterprise that can take somebody's intellectual property, use it to make money, and not either ask for permission or provide any compensation. So we're just about out of time, and we're going to wrap up by asking each of the panelists uh, how they think things will look in the future for artist revenue streams, and then, of course, feel free afterwards to come up and say hi to us. Uh, we'll start at the other end with Dean. Well, look, I, I think uh, it's already pointing towards the future. I mean, I think uh, what what is important is, getting back to a lot of what the panel said, is that the music business is not going to turn along in the way it was maybe in the 80s and 90s where artists kind of plugged into a vehicle and found their way to make money. It's going to be more about artists individually creating their own business and creating their own vehicles to monetize and find revenue for what they create. And each artist brings something different to the table. And it's about finding a way to find those revenue streams out of that list we talked about at the beginning of this panel. Find those revenue streams that you can be most active in where your fan base, where your consumers are going to see that you provide the most value. And that's where you'll see the money. Um, you know, we, we had an experience with Matchbox 20 where we, were, we weren't monetizing uh, their live shows. Uh, <laughs> what was that, Stephen? <laughs> so, but we found a way to monetize uh, their live shows in a way that we never thought uh, was possible, uh, you know, when they first got started. And that was, we were the first ones to adopt the USB bracelets, uh, that every night as fans walked out of the concerts, there was an opportunity there to buy the entire show. Uh, and you could walk out and have, go home and listen to that show over and over and over. And that was something that made sense for that band. They have a very loyal fan base, a very active live audience. They've done incredibly well as an arena touring act. And that's been a huge uh, revenue growth for them. And in a way that for several of our other artists, you know, that's not possible yet. Their brand's not big enough yet. So it's about each artist finding their unique way to, uh, to monetize and, and recognizing that the music business is not, doesn't have the answer for you. You have to find it yourself. I see uh, a lot of disruption and competition in two major areas. One, I think um, that management companies are going to continue to mature and build out that business model that uh, Dina was talking about uh, and getting more and more formalized around that uh, and starting to take more of the label of responsibility on uh, inside of management, uh, coupling it with the other uh, uh, revenue streams. And then I think also um, th there, there are a lot of problems still to be solved on the tech side. Uh, there's still a lot of barriers to, to customer acquisition, still a lot of barriers to monetization that I think uh, technology still has yet to really really solve. So we'll, we'll see a lot of interesting platforms over the next couple of years. I'm an entrepreneur at heart, so I've got to be uh, optimistic. And I am optimistic about uh, direct-to-fan revenue streams. I think that uh, with advances in, in communication and technology and that emotional attachment between artist and fan that we can definitely see some increases in revenue there. Um, and I am also uh, optimistic about the independent music sector. Uh, and the fact of the matter is, is uh, you've got access to the same tools as the major record labels, and a lot of these tools are cost efficient. So uh, if you know how to use them correctly, and again, you partner with the right uh, people and companies uh, that can help you to uh, access those those tools and use them properly, then you know the future is bright for you. I am concerned about what the potential impact uh, is of, of the cloud and when uh, music moves to an access model, and we haven't talked about that today. 
But, uh, you know, I've spoken before about the cash flow impact to artists and labels, and uh, it's something that this summer, as, as the largest companies that we rely on for uh, access to these consumers, as they move everything into the cloud and it becomes about uh, access uh, and streaming and subscription services, I hope that the industry can weather that storm uh, as well because it's going to have an impact on us for, you know, for the short term. Over the long term, we stand to make more money from it. Uh, but in the short term, the trade-off between a, a download and a, and a stream is, is something that uh, financially can, can impact the industry. So hopefully Tim and the rest of the folks there at Google are thinking about that when they're coming up with their contractual rates for... Uh, independents and majors and um, so hopefully you'll treat us all as we should be treated which is as equals great comment I think the future is building the artist brand as a business certainly for me representing creators that's going to be the forefront of our priorities for the next you know several years if not forever keeping the different income streams coming, looking, you know, working with the artist and all their different ideas and creativity to create new business models and new income streams that are new, re new business models that help them increase different revenue streams. And with that, I'll end. You know, I'd rather be sitting all by myself on a pumpkin than be crowded on a velvet pillow. <laughs> I got to follow that. All right. Um, you know, I, I'll echo a lot of the sentiment that, that we've already heard. Look, I'm very optimistic about the future. I think anytime that there's uh, an industry that's in transition, it creates opportunity. Uh, one of the things I would also echo specifically about what Rob said is about the tools that you have access to. Um, and, you know, the, the biggest artists in the world use tools that, you know, artists that, that are independent and have very little money have access to now. But specifically, I think it's about having the right content management system, the right uh, customer relationship management system, and the right e-commerce. And those three kind of uh, uh, core pieces of technology working together, I think, are absolutely vital. And uh, it's just great that you that you have access to them now. And then, of course, I look forward to you know sending out more and more money for uh, non-interactive digital performances. Let's give a hand to this wonderful panel. Wow, what a great group of people. A bunch of my favorite people up here, so I'm thrilled. We're about to go to lunch. Please try to be back at 1 o'clock, because we're going strong, starting one. Twice as packed the afternoon as we got in the morning, so speak to you soon. <laughs>